We are no historians, but to dive into history through the words of a poet from the past, as we're doing with Shakespeare, involves at least an appreciation of history. That's doubly true when it comes to Shakespeare's history plays, which were themselves interpretations of historical facts and records reimagined for Shakespeare's contemporary audience. Shakespeare took what he and his audience thought to be true from the past and wove tales together to make sense of that past for the benefit of the present. And we all do that with the past too. Now for most of us, by and large, the sense of history most of us inherit is based on ages and eras and big concepts like that. The Bronze Age, the Iron Age, the Medieval Age, the Renaissance era, and so on and so forth. And that general grouping of time into distinct periods recognizable by certain features is always bound to fall apart at one point or another. When you're trying to sum up the entirety of a human society in a particular point of time and space, the categories we use to understand one period, as distinct from another, inevitably start to fall apart. For English history, at least, that period of gradual change from the medieval era, the medieval ages, the middle ages, to the early modern or the renaissance period of England that we talk about so much on this podcast has a neat little overlay. The Hundred Years' War, that war between the English and French nobles for the crown of France, saw a huge change in many facets of life on both sides, but especially in England. Some elements of the society that we commonly identify as medieval were already falling apart or already in disarray, while others that we identify as renaissance were already starting to take hold. Today, to help illuminate a bit of the history as Shakespeare saw it, we're looking at the same period of history as we now understand it. We'll hopefully get a sense of the changes that affected over five generations of English monarchs and millions of nobles, peasants, and soldiers who all fought in this long, grueling war. Since brevity is the soul of wit. More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward. An infinite and endless liar. An hourly promise breaker. The owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertainment. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. And if that speech was too long and grueling and you're not interested, you should probably bow now because we are here to talk about the Hundred Years' War, Lindsay. We are. Um, the Hundred Years' War mis- misnomered. Yes. Um, it actually Quite lasted terribly. about 116 years or so. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't, uh, was it battle after battle after battle right after the other? Were they fighting no. continually? No, so not even close. I, kind of like the Wars of the Roses where yeah. it was like periods of war interrupting long stretches of peace. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that was a, a really great opening. And I like the way in that you mentioned that we're, we're going to be talking about eras and ages, and we've already done that. But to get a sense of, of the broad sweep of history in terms of these neat, discrete chunks is kind of, it's, it's for our benefit as readers and thinkers and historians today. But history is never really that neat, except right here, where it kind of does usher in an early modern era in yeah. in Western, um, well, in England and France. So yeah. the Canada is a beneficiary of both <laughs> yes. of those, um, and and yeah. the United States as well to a degree. So I mean, this is important for us as in Western society. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, um, and it is it is a, a, an interesting period for. I mean, the the conflicts themselves are 
complicated and and kind of arcane by today's standards, but uh, they're also very simple to understand. It was, I want that crown. I I should be the king of France. Mm. And they're like, no, no, I should be the king of France. And that was it. And that just lasted, that argument lasted 116 years. Uh, and it's kind of crazy that uh, it continued and it that the crown actually changed hands at, uh, at a couple points, which is also crazy. Well, and, it, and I mean, it just bleeds into this longer um, English sense of inferiority compared to the French because the English really were the French for a very long time (laughs) from the Norman conquest all the way up through the Plantagenets and um I guess right on to the Tudors they they really were um the inheritors of French culture and so yeah and as we've learned with you know kings like Henry VI who um, actually was the king of France for a time. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a very messy tale of, of houses and dynasties that kind of bleed into one another. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna keep it kind of simple. Hopefully. And yeah, I mean, honestly, uh, if you want like dates and details and stuff like that, we're not gonna be great at providing that. No, but there are lots of places where you can find yes. that and we will link to them <laughs> in our podcast yes. landing page. Um, even just the Wikipedia entry on the Hundred Years' War is a fine starting off point. There's a couple of good documentaries Lindsay watched on YouTube. Uh, there's 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 no shortage of information on this topic. Um, but we kind of wanted to take a look at some of the bigger themes and how they kind of led into Shakespeare's time and the plays he wrote about um, about this time period. We just read uh, Henry the Sixth Part One, but I mean the Hundred Years' War was going on uh, during Richard the Second, also a Shakespeare play. Mm-hmm. Henry the Fourth and Fifth. Also, three it starts with plays. Edward III, which is where our Wars of the Roses yeah. discussion began way back when. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's but we are looking at it through the lens of how this impacted um, the writing of the history plays yeah. as Shakespeare and the histories that Shakespeare understood them mm-hmm. and that his sources understood uh, yeah. Holland's head and, and others. Yeah. So um, and I should preface this by saying that I know very little about this time period. Um it's been a busy time for me at work and I didn't have as much time to devote to this. So, so the teacher has become the student. Aiden is going to to be the, the uh, pedagogue at the front of the class. And I will try not to spitball, literally throw spitballs. No, if you need to go at his head, but um, unlike you, I don't know what I'm talking about. No, I think (laughs) I I do think you do. And I, I'm, I'm not shooting you down. I'm saying that I have Aiden, you read a novel or I'm sorry, not a novel, but a, (laughs) A yeah. very large historical. It was actually a short. Text. There was there was a great series on the Hundred Years' War, a five part one, each book about six hundred pages. Wow. I was like, I could dive into that, mm-hmm. but I didn't. I went for an abbreviated history mm-hmm. of uh, the Hundred Years' War. I think that's actually what it called. If not, I'll uh, we'll post up the link to that book as well that I did read. Uh, it was a very good short history. It was very factual, but it also dove into some of the themes and and uh, um, cultural changes. I would say that that we're going to discuss here today. But to give uh, that brief, short, introductory kind of history, uh, it all goes back to William the First, yes. as most things do in England. Yes, let's, let's make things short and go back to 1066. <laughs> so in 1066, <laughs> so uh, yeah, William the First, uh, when he became king of England, didn't stop being the Duke of Normandy, right? Um, and he still ostensibly owed uh, vassalage to uh, King. Is that a word, teacher? Vassalage? Did yes. you just make up a word? No. Again, if you'd played Crusader Kings 2, Lindsay, you would know <laughs> these words backwards and forwards. Anyways, he uh, owed allegiance. Uh, he bent the knee oh, to go Jesus. back. Oh, Yeah, we're not going to go there. Uh, but he owed allegiance to uh, the French king. Um, and so did his descendants 
through on time uh at one point the end of an empire uh henry the second had uh you know the duchy of aquitaine which is a huge part of southern france uh as well as normandy and parts of uh anjou and other areas in like the midlands of france uh, at one point in the english monarchs had owned more of france than any french, french nobles what uh, not even close right um and so this this went back and forth over time. Lands would get inherited or taken over in a war. Marriages would happen. Marriages Eleanor of Aquitaine was yeah. one of the wealthiest landowners. Exactly. In all and of... that's where Henry II yeah, got his exactly. lands from, right? Uh, and then, yeah, king, bad kings like King John would lose them in wars and, mm. and so on and so forth. Um, but this really kind of came to a head in 1328. Uh, king Charles V of France dies. And he doesn't have a direct heir, um, so there's multiple. So he had options. no children, or he had. I don't um, remember. I think he did have children. They were illegitimate, or something. Yeah, I think it yeah. was something like that. Uh, so they Typical weren't shown. French, exactly. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> Again, that's the Canadian in us. Just we, we always poke fun at the French. That's I am French. Do. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm allowed to do this. It's part of it's who I am. And My how, Quebec how are your blood. French uh, skills, Lindsay? Say bon? <laughs> that's not, that's not the right way to answer that question. Um, anyways, uh, the two main co- complainants to this, uh, one was on the English side, Edward III, the current king of England. Uh, I think he inherited it from his mother, was a princess of France. Yes. And so he thought, oh, well, I'm going to be definitely the, the king of France. That's how it should work. Of course, in French law, women really couldn't inherit, you know, a chicken coup, let alone, you know, a, uh, a kingdom. So really, he didn't really have much of a legal leg to stand on, but none of that mattered. In any case, the other one on the French side was Philip of Valois. And so he's founded ah, the Valois. The Valois. They, after the Capetian, this uh, Charles V was the kind of last of the Capetians, I believe. And the Valois came over and they basically ruled for... Uh, a couple hundred years Aren't there Capetian descendants in the, there, like, there. quote, unquote, royal families of oh, many other... Yes, they also like continue... Spain well, and the, the Valois blood? is just considered a cadet family. Again, if you played Crusader Kings 2, Lindsay, I could explain this to you by when they take over the war and the female heir comes in. Anyways, there's many, many complicated things about this, but these were the two main players for mm. this initial start of the war. Philip and Edward. Edward. Gotcha. So, uh... Edward III was already a, a vassal of Charles V when, uh, or yeah, when Charles V died, because he still had some some lands in in France, Gascony, uh, right? Yeah, Ga- I think that Guyenne was it. or Guyenne and uh, the Countcy of Pontieu, which is I think one of the Channel Islands. It's like a tiny oh, little yes. uh, estate, right? Um, and Charles was like, mm, no, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna take over the crown instead of paying you homage. You should pay me homage for your lands that I legitimately legitimately uh recognized from you um and by 1337 uh the war was underway and that was kind of that was it after that it just took on a life of its own because mm-hmm. uh even after both of those men had died the uh claim over who owned the the kingdom of france continued and continued and continued and in some respects it stopped being for long periods of time it wasn't so much about um someone taking over the crown so much as it was uh just an excuse to go kill people and start wars and rape and pillage and wow so really you mean yeah. there was a, a medieval military industrial complex Lindsay, you have no idea what the, the truth bombs i'm about to drop on you will explode your mind you should see the shock and awe on my face it is a tale told by an idiot it's full of sound and fury signifying Nothing. So, uh, as we mentioned, 100 years of intermittent warfare. 
and defined, and as I just said to, to Lindsay, uh, in many cases by pillaging, not so much uh, huge uh, tracts of land changing hands or anything like that. It was literally just the English. Come in, burn the shit out of everything. Would, exactly. And yeah. then take away all the booty they could and head right. back to England. Right. Um, and there were many famous battles. Um uh, of which England actually won quite a few, uh, which is one of the turning points of the historical period. Can I ask why England was so successful? Is that is that yes. something you're going to get into? Yes, in fact, okay. right away. Okay, great. Uh, but eventually, uh, just to ruin the ending, first of all, though, France wins the yes. Hundred Years' War, obviously. Boo, I yeah. knew that. I mean, they kind of lost it, but then they won it in the end, so mm-hmm. it, it all worked out. Uh, go Joan of Arc. Um, so there were, just to go over some of the famous battles, because we'll, we might mention them here and there. Um, there was Cressy, uh, again, butchering all the French names, I'm sure. That sounds uh, about right. 1346. That was the the battle that kind of established England as a military power, um, because up until this point, uh, France was the dominant military power in Western Europe, probably most of Europe uh, as it stood. All the chevaliers. Exactly. Right? They were they were the masters of the knights knighthood and the uh, horse charge. The the mailed knights on huge horses mowing down the opposition right. uh, with their giant uh, battle formations and so yeah. forth. Um, and England came along with these little s- small guys with you know bows from the Welsh woods, and all of a sudden they could kill hundreds of these. Uh, Are we talking the longbows now? Yes. So yes. the English longbow really changed the course right. of the war uh, for everybody, um, but especially for England in this time period because. Uh, between that battle and also the Battle of Poitiers uh, in 1356, where King John, who was, I think, uh, Philip's son, um, was captured by the English in 1356. Oh, yes, that's right. And then he basically, he eventually died, actually, in, yeah. in the Tower like of London. years later, right? Yeah. and it's a crazy story because he, he was captured at this battle. Uh, they agreed on a ransom. France paid some of the ransom, like a down payment, got him back. And then when they couldn't pay more, he voluntarily returned <laughs> to London. Yes. Oh, my this God. This is real because his, his their code of chivalry demanded that he, you know, honor his agreement that was made. That's so he went back bogus. to London what? and he died there. Oh, my God. Yes. I mean, he, he I think he died fairly shortly after he came back. It's not like he languished there for Well, and I'm sure again, as the son of a king, he probably wasn't, you know, in chains no. in the dungeon. No, he apparently they threw a, a big nice... party for him when he yeah. came back. It's like, hey, you're back. Right and on. he died. Like, oh, my surely. God. That's insane. <laughs> I had no idea. That's wild. It is. But he did crazy. it because of this, this night, this knightly well, chivalric. Yeah. Which the France, the France, the French. Had very much. Uh, we kind of cornered the market on the exactly. whole thing, right? Like this yeah. is the time of of Chrétien de Troyes and the the Knights of the Round Table, and yeah. you know Arthur and Guinevere and all of these wonderful stories yeah. of that we all know. That you know this was they took it. I didn't realize they took it that seriously, they, but they I did. honestly I thought it was just about you know your your valor on the battlefield, and I guess that extends to all aspects of your of your life. I mean, it didn't for some people, but some sure. people did. And that's insane. It's insane that you would voluntarily turn yourself in as a prisoner. And it's crazy. So can we talk about just just yep. briefly, um, the longbow has always really interested me because it is such a an innovation in terms of military yep. um, uh, weaponry. Yeah. And um and I did watch a very extensive documentary just, just about the longbow. the longbow. Oh, well, then, Lindsay, do well, share. <laughs> well, and I don't have specifics, but it's just um, the fact that you could have like they had crossbows mm-hmm. which took very like up Long. to 
a minute maybe yeah, to, to reload, load, yeah. um, which is totally impractical when you're being faced down with by, yes yeah. by French um, knights on horseback. Yeah. Uh, they had short bows, which I think were they they couldn't even pierce through yeah. anything. Yeah. Like they were they just did not have the power. Yeah. If you were so, unarmored entirely, you yes, would be, exactly. It would hurt, but but yeah. a knight in in full metal or chainmail, you were doing no damage yeah. there. But these long bows were were something of a. Like a huge, it, it's like the equivalent of I don't know, well, a tank like, or something. Well, yeah, or in, like a machine gun. Changing right. World War One, they weren't exactly. ready for the machine guns to just mow people down. Exactly, and that's what they yeah. could do because, and they had such distance and and these strong English trees that they would be chopping mm-hmm. down, and then people spending years. This was their only job, and I've actually um, heard of excavations, archaeological excavations, where they find bones, and they can tell just from looking. At the bones. Yeah. One shoulder blade, like the bone itself is twice the size, maybe not quite that much, but it's much larger than yeah. the other side because that's where they would hook. That. That's what they were using to yeah. pull. So the bone grew as the muscle grew. Like this is how insane these guys were. Like this is what they did. Yeah. These these northern English men who were just, you know, firing off longbows day after day after day. Yeah. Um, so and the range they could have, they could pierce through armor. Um and you didn't and you need a, a mounted. Dozen of them, yeah. Well, yeah, that's exactly it. And you didn't need a mounted contingency to um, to carry mow your, down. Yeah, 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 or even to carry your ammunition or anything like that. It's much safer than, uh, yeah, a knight who needs a horse for his armor and a horse mm. for his uh, huge lance that he yeah. carries. Like, there's too much stuff for one animal to carry. Yeah. Whereas an archer could carry most of what he needed on his back. And right. just drop most of and then, it. And then be relatively safe, I guess, because you could be far away and firing like that distance. It just mm-hmm. decimated the French during the Hundred Years' War and was one of the main reasons why Cressy, Poitiers, and Agincourt, Agincourt. Agincourt were so decisive English victories was yeah. because of innovations like the longbow. I just think that's, you know, I'm not much of a military historian or a military fan, but I think that's that's just really interesting to see how, um, how one tiny little innovation i guess that's how people are going to look at the machine gun or something and yeah. when it comes to world war one yeah that's yeah. true but. um but it is it is very noteworthy um of course the other thing that killed a lot of people in this time period was not the battles it was the black death oh yes 1347 right 1347 right smack dab at the, basically at the start of the war in reality um lasted for about four years the mm-hmm. really bad portion of it um up to half of france and england died uh potentially even more yeah. uh there's no super great records of the time period. Yeah, because they just see a dead body and they throw it in a grave because they don't want to catch whatever the dead body has. So no one's keeping track of how many family members are dying. (laughs) Exactly. And a lot of the literate people were also dying. So, and there weren't many of them. So uh, there were a lot of problems in this time period, but that was, that was a huge one because it it fundamentally changed um, not just how the war would happen, but how uh, the economics of preparing and going to this war uh, would occur. Because Edward Third, when he started off, um, he was able to raise taxes and, uh, you know, push the peasantry really hard to support his war. Um, and when he came back with plunder, they were all like, yeah, let's go for it. This is the only thing I've got going in my life is perhaps the opportunity to get some fine French materials on a, on a, on a war. Um, but after this, after the plague... The uh, purchase or the, not the purchasing power, the labor power of right. your average everyday peasant went through the roof because there was so much untilled land to look after. And, and so they few could, people left to do it. Well, if they could. I mean, the, the problem was this was also pushing against the whole idea of uh, 
peasants owing service to their lord, which is tied to the land. Whereas Mm -hmm. if there's more profitable land over yonder to Mm -hmm. farm, uh, I'm going to take up my plow and go. Well, and this is, this is what leads into the peasants revolt that we talked about in the Mm -hmm. Wars of the Roses, Watt Tyler and the the peasants revolt, which, um, dramatically shook the the foundations of English society. Um, but yeah, so, so yeah, obviously black death has, well, exactly. And, And it was kind of delayed because again, this is, this is the end of the medieval period where where those ties were were the entire structure of society at that mm-hmm. point was you owe your lord service and that lord will in turn protect you. Right. That was the whole relationship of everyone from the top down. Yeah. Uh, that started to fall apart militarily fairly soon into the war. Right. Uh, and it fell apart economically basically after the Black Death. Yeah. And then the social impacts followed. But it took a long time because... The, the religious belief uh, and just the everyday belief of everybody involved was that this is how the world is structured. Um, so it took a while for them to realize, well, no, I can go make more money over there and you guys be damned. Um, and it took until the population recovered, which took, you know, over 100 years. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, the the tide turned after Agincourt, after Henry V, uh, decimated the French once again in a huge battle. Um, and then uh, the French started winning battles starting about 1420s, 1426 or so, um, as Henry VI was on the throne, not doing much of anything. Uh, he was a baby. He was a baby. Cut him some slack. But even when he wasn't a baby, he <laughs> gave up so much of yeah, uh, France. They lost battles at Orléans, which was in Henry VI Part One, uh, Castillon. Uh, there were a bunch of other battles, especially through... Uh, the North, they retook Normandy at one point. A generation of Normans had grown up under English reign. It had been about 20, 25 years uh, since England took back Normandy. Huh. Um, I think that was under Henry the Fourth. I believe so. It might, have, it might have been Richard. No, it was probably Henry the IV. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden France took it back again. And all these people were like, uh, I'm English, right. kind of. I mean, because right. they were Normans still. This wasn't a, an era of... Huge nationalism. Mm-hmm. We'll get we'll get to the nationalism. There was a there were some fans being flamed there too. Uh, so yes, eventually you mean flames being fanned. Did I say fans being flamed? Yeah, wow. but that works too. I like yeah. it. Fans being flamed. It's an Aidenism. Yeah, I do that on occasion. <laughs> Snaps uh, like butter. <laughs> it snaps like butter, and the French win the war. Yes. About 1453 is considered okay. the last date uh, when they, they finally push the English off to everything except for Calais, uh, which right. they do eventually lose later right. on too. Um, the, the thing about the nationalism, can we come back to that yeah, really briefly? Because that. it seems like the, the two main things that come out of, um, well, I guess three main things, two main things, um, a new tax structure and the idea of, of taxes being collected for standing armies and things like what we now, um, concede to social services and stuff like that all kind of had their roots in this period mm-hmm. but also the sense of um national pride and nationalism which has a bad rap today because of things that have happened in, in <laughs> modern day yeah. nationalism does not have the greatest uh, reputation but at the time it was this sense of of pride in a country that you came from which england had to a degree but France certainly didn't. France was mostly these these little provinces that all, kind of all came together as vassal states to, you know, paying allegiance or owing mm-hmm. allegiance to the king. But but winning all these wars and coming together, it seems to have galvanized the, the nation of France. And it did the same for England, especially these big battles. And that's why Henry V winning at Agincourt in 1415 is so um, critical 
a part of English yeah. history because it was a major English victory. Yeah. And it, you know, I almost draw the comparison to like the War of 1812 for canada and the united states and how it kind of created us as countries mm-hmm. you know because it, it, well, it showed... separated us from them right? right and that's what wars inevitably force you to do right exactly. there's an us there's a them yeah and and and, it, yeah. and it's no longer about being you know upper canada lower canada it's like no we're fighting against the americans yeah. so now we are all canadians yeah. you know and that and that seems to be what happened here absolutely correct me if i'm wrong nope that's that's exactly it and uh i mean you see that in um in a, in a lot of the Shakespearean plays, uh, the ti- the title of the character is the most important thing, right? right? It's the Duke Norman of Gloucester, Dean. yeah, exactly. Yes. Uh, Lancaster, York, you know, it's it's not just a statement of title, although it does serve that purpose, but it's also a sense of location, of right. of source, of this where person you're is from the north. This exactly. person is from yeah, where your power comes yeah. from, where your upraising, upra- upbringing, sorry, upraising is uh, is located. All those elements kind of play into it. And it was much more, actually, it's much more pronounced in, in France of the mm-hmm. two countries that were at war. Um, France had a habit of uh, gifting titles and lands that were very closely together. So the Duke of Poitou, or the Count of Poitou, w- most of his his lands would be in the Poitou area. Whereas the Duke of York could have lands in York and then down in uh, Lancashire and down in the Southlands and even in Dorset or something like that. Like, they could be anywhere in the, si- right. in the, in the country of England. And so uh, for the English monarchs, they or the English nobles, they would generally tend to have a location that was their home, but then they could have lands all over the, so the country. So they were already feeling a little bit more nationalistic. Like, yeah. this is they, they all my a, land. They had a larger sense of, of, at least they'd seen more likely more, more of, their, of, the of the country, country than uh, in France. Whereas in France, it was very much, you stay within 25 miles of, of where your lands, your yeah, title lands Yeah, most likely, until are, you go to war to right. kind of get more land, basically, right, is, right. is how that would work. Okay. Um, and so that the, you mentioned the taxes and, and how that kind of interacted there was kind of interesting because uh, generally uh, it was... In England, we always kind of think of Parliament granting mm-hmm. the right for the king to raise money for an army, and go and usually that would be the only reason they would do that was yeah. to raise money for yeah, a they didn't war. Want to raise taxes on well, the, unless the the king's coffers were low, then he might ask Parliament. For yeah, money, well, if but, he needed something, but I mean, it was yeah. generally not uh, frowned upon, or it was frowned upon to, uh, to raise taxes. to raise taxes at all. Yeah, for, unless there was a specific purpose, um, and the. The French, meanwhile, uh, because they had those many kind of kingdoms within mm-hmm. one another, uh, they were a little more free with raising their taxes uh, for their own purposes. So a Duke of Burgundy, for instance, who is a major player and winds up tilting the balance of power in, in the war one in the way later or the years. Other. Yeah, <laughs> many times. Exactly. Uh, you know, he would he would have no problem raising his own uh, army for his own purposes, for that exact purpose. So, so it, then when, the people who lived within the Duchy of Burgundy would be paying higher taxes than yeah. Aquitaine or yes. wherever. And it would serve okay. their own kind of local purpose, right, whereas right, Parliament right. would raise it for a national army. Right. So, and that, that kind of backed off uh back it went back and forth and actually uh towards the end it's actually france who had the most centralized states in the end uh they'd started because they uh the king of france when he took back a lot of the land claimed a lot of it for himself okay um and so he would just get rid of the english nobles and keep a lot of the land and there and then he used it directly to raise money for things like the standing army which was actually the first Mm france was the first one by the end of the war the first country in europe to have a standing army a french standing french standing army that reported directly to the king because england at that point was still having you know lords 
or whoever raising armies yeah. from the people who lived in that area to bring to national. A little bit. Let's okay. jump over okay, there, cool, Lizzie, because cool. what was happening in England was a little different uh, because you think that's exactly how it would work. Your lord calls on you to come fight. Um, and at the start of the war, that's close to how it was. Mm-hmm. Um, there was... Uh, the reason they had so many good archers was because every peasant was supposed to spend, I don't know, half of a Sunday or something. Once a week, they were supposed to practice their archery skills. Really? So every man who was, you know, and boy from like the age of 12 till they could basically no longer hold a bow would practice every day. So when they were called up for the army in those early battles, uh, they were uh, basically a trained Ready fighting force. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and they were fairly cheap in comparison to... Uh, the French, which is important, and this is just a side tangent, but the population of England at the start of the war is about 6 million, mm-hmm. uh, or is it 3 million, and the French was 20 million. In any case, it's like five wow. times bigger. Uh, oh, shit. Yeah, France was massively, uh, much more economically developed and much just richer because of that uh, country. Their farmlands were much more developed. There's no, there's a lot of forestry still in, or forested land story in England. Well, they were the, they were the top tier, you know, next to the Holy Roman Emperor and yeah. the Pope, really. The, the French kings yeah. looked at themselves as, yeah. that, that the rules with their yeah. peers, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, I mean, and, and the country itself has, still to this day, I mean wineries and there's oh, all yeah. kinds of cheese and there's all kinds of things whereas england at the time i think wool was their main export that was number and one they dealt were. mostly with the flemish yeah. who were kind of in the pocket of the french yeah. so i mean their 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 limited growth was kind of hampering them a lot in that yeah. regard too. yeah and they i mean they did produce an excess of food there was a surplus of uh they traded food in a lot of cases for uh, wine and french goods right. and stuff up right. to that point um but yeah they're they're they were not the breadbasket of Europe by no. any means. Uh, so, so yeah. So in these early years, uh, it was basically still a medieval system mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. The, the peasants come up to serve in the army when called upon. Um, and that died away pretty quickly after the Black Death because yes. the peasants needed to stay on the land just to keep everyone fed and alive. And there wasn't much taxes to be raised. Um, so what happened was the uh, English moved to a system called... Indenture. Indenture. In, in, indenture. Indentureship. In, in, indenturing. Inden, indenture. 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 Yes. Indenture. You were an indentured servant? Yes, yes. Basically is what it is. Indentured servitude. <laughs> so this was a slightly different system in that the nobles uh, who would normally call upon their direct peasants were instead, instead said, told to just recruit anybody. Okay. Find the people. You pay for them. Mm-hmm. You get the money however you want to pay for these people uh, and they will be your soldiers. So it was kind of like a semi-pro army. Okay. (laughs) In the sense that... It's triple A. Yeah, it's triple A. Not not NBA, not professional. No, no. These are junior leaguers, but they're they're coming on up uh, because uh, what could happen was you could serve the Duke of York one year and then when he was done with his warring and maybe it wasn't profitable and he could barely afford to pay you or he didn't pay you, the next year you could go on and serve with the... Count of Oxford as he went pillaging through France. And so you could go from one war to another and it created kind of like a mercenary class within uh, English society. Um, And so they they kind of had the benefit of these veteran soldiers sticking around from one campaign to the next. Gotcha. Um, And some of them, you know, there was a a good couple stories in in the book I did read uh, called where a guy would go there and then he would go fight for the Teutonic Order to try and pacify the Slavs in the East and then he would go fight against the Turks in you know in a crusade yeah and then he'd wind up coming back to England and fighting in France um 
And this kind of brings us to one of the more interesting aspects of this from an English historical perspective, which is that uh, the English soldiers and nobility were had no money. They were, again, very poor in comparison to France. Yeah. Um, but because they were the dominant military power in the war, the French largely avoided fighting them for basically like 60 some years after uh, the war or no during, during in the, the middle war? of the war there was a whole period from uh after uh not Cressy uh what was the Agincourt no Poitiers Poitiers after they captured King John basically the French just didn't want to fight anymore uh how do you fight a war a massive well, <laughs> war but don't fight one another exactly and that's the problem is because the English started this thing called the Chef O'Shea okay oh I'm I'm in for this I like new words. So the chevauchet was basically the raping and pillaging of northern <laughs> France. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes, I know what that is. <laughs> so Brilliant. It was, and it was terribly, terribly brutal. I mean, it was yeah. basically just a, a reign of absolute terror. They would yes. literally just kill all the men, yes. rape all the women. Uh, they were, instead of killing children or Jesus. burning whole towns alive, they'd give everyone in a church and burn it down. Like, it's massively terrible, terrible things that they were doing. The English doing this in northern France. Yeah, well, ever, all through France, yeah, but okay. especially okay. in northern France. Okay. Took the brunt of it in a lot of cases. Um, and they, yeah, they would pillage everything. So literally, if, I mean, food was the biggest one. They would yeah. come in harvest season, kill all the peasants and take all their food right. um, back to England because England couldn't feed itself for periods because of the Black Death. Uh, but mostly they would take uh, anything that had value and was portable. So like right. gems, uh, clothing, uh, weapons, uh, statues, like anything that, wow. yeah, like you could find it anywhere in France. You could find it in England because the soldiers had gone and taken it from France and brought it back. Wow. And it's it's kind of kind of really uh, crazy because this kind of became a cottage industry in England. <laughs> it was their whole, their... They were the soldiers whose entire livelihood was made by getting paid by uh, a noble to go into France and kill people and then hauling back any booty you could get and selling it selling in England. Selling it to whomever would pay. Yeah. And so it's it's a it's a strange economic system because it doesn't actually lead to England getting much richer per se because right. the fundamentals are there that they don't have enough people to do the jobs that yeah. would make them yeah. rich and the... The economic base has not grown, Lindsay, right. to, no. to support this. Thank you for that <laughs> so they've explanation just, they, with your hands. God, I wish you guys could see this. <laughs> so they've just been—they've just basically been stealing yes. the, the finished goods without yes. taking any of the know-how to to build these things themselves, right. or having the industry uh, or uh, the natural resources in England to actually produce right. fine furs right. or something. like So it's that. not dramatically changing their station in life, but it's tilting the 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 balance of power in a war that yeah, yeah. yeah. okay that's it's, really interesting it's, it's an interesting yeah. it's an interesting interesting switch um and that all changes at after Agincourt uh well no before Agincourt it's between Poitiers and Agincourt okay. kind of is is in this period of it's the Richard II he would you know when he did go to France he didn't go to France very much because they were dealing with the Black Plague and yeah. uh the fallout of that still um uh, when Henry the Fourth would initially go through France, um, or he'd send his captains. Right. A lot of the time, it was not the king leading an army anymore. It was right. very much just uh, send oh, your top yeah, guys. Send your yeah, send a duke with ten captains and a thousand soldiers, and they would just ravage the right. the land. Um, so they yeah. So this this kind of period in there. Uh, this is this is when the chevauchet. I'm sure I'm also pronouncing that. And I don't know where the etymology of that one, it sounds like uh, the anti-chivalric uh, code, because that's basically what it was. I mean, and 
and uh, now we'll jump off a sidetrack here of saying this was a major changing point for uh, moral norms uh, in in England, especially um, because they basically did become like a terrorist organization. Their whole point and the whole point of the Chevrochet was to um, try and reduce the the hold of France uh, of the French monarch on the French lands. If your French lord can't protect you, right. maybe you should be English after right. all. Um, so, was there a chance that the English could land in a city and they'd be like, "Oh, hold on, you know what? We'll we'll be English. We'll we'll yeah, bend that, the knee it, it, as it is, yes, as it, it was." It did happen quite okay. often. Uh, the other thing was if there was a French garrison mm-hmm. uh, protecting a city, especially, mm-hmm. uh, and the English had already plundered enough booty, they'd just say, "Oh, well, we'll just pay you to let us in, and we'll so we can kill everybody." <laughs> Oh, wow. It happened in all sorts of machinations. Anybody, it was a very, very terrible well, time. Well, I, and, and it's long before we have any kind of, you know, the Hague councils yeah. and courts and yeah. war crimes. I mean, Henry the Henry the Fifth famously killed a bunch of French prisoners of war, which yeah. was considered pretty awful. And Shakespeare writes about that in, yeah. in Henry the Fifth. So, exactly. I mean, it's... I think even that, the fact that that filters up into the literature, which was trying to espouse a kind of ideal for, um, maybe not an ideal, but but uh, a, a, a cleaner a version. Well, of, yeah, and of and to history. to kind of explain like we've earned the reign of Gloriana and mm-hmm. the the fight against the Spanish Armada is our our birthright because look at where we've come. We defeated the French for Christ's sake, right? But having said that, we also did some shitty shit. You know, we killed a bunch of French prisoners. Yeah. So, I mean, but, I mean it, the fact that that filters up says something. That, yeah. that, that it it had to have been pretty brutal and for it to have well, and, and it's come into the because, propaganda. I mean, the, the idea of chivalry is that you treat people well when they're prisoners. Um, but it only really applied to nobles. So all this murdering of peasants, I guess, really didn't, didn't factor in. But you like when I was reading the history period... Uh, the, the sacrificing of Henry V's prisoners to ensure they didn't riot and mm-hmm. kill him later on seems like a small deal compared to, you know, there was a there were instances of like towns of 2,000 people being killed, mm-hmm. like five of those towns in a, in a year, right? So what, what do a couple of soldiers matter? Yeah, like it, right, right, it's right. just an odd, um, it's an odd shift away from the Middle, the middle Ages again, right. where you could countenance killing um, these prisoners who, you know, are Christian and they're, they're good people and they're probably Innocent. related to you yeah. <laughs> in some way. Um, and you can kill them anyways and not face like a revolution or an uprising or anything mm-hmm. like this, because, um, unlike King John the second, you're not going to turn yourself in. You know, if Henry the fifth had been captured, uh, you know, this is 60 years after, uh, John the second had ter- returned to England to be ransomed. The French again. John. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, the French King had returned to be, uh, ransomed again you know i don't see henry the fifth doing that if he's no. captured and then no. escapes it's that that shift has already kind of happened in terms of the morality of what's acceptable during warfare and right. i think the chevauchet had a lot to do with it because it um it really laid a very low baseline for acceptable behavior in warfare i'm gonna i'm gonna go out on a limb here and say i kind of wish we stuck with the chevalier but i mean at least at least we do have the geneva conventions yeah. today but which is kind of based on chivalric <laughs> code yes, right yes. like don't treat people like yeah we few we happy few we band of brothers
So, um, and the way this ties back into nationalism and the economy and all these things is that it's a strange system, the chevauchet, uh, to, um, to discuss. It's basically total war. I mean, it feels like it wouldn't be unheard of in World War II. You know, the Nazis invaded Russia mm-hmm. and they just slaughtered everybody and took all their food and, and instigated, you know, mass starvation and stuff. Uh, it's very similar, but it, there was no scope to actually uh, fight back in a total war sense. Mm-hmm. It was still kind of bound by uh, the uh, the chivalric code of knights and fair fights and mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. But with this seedy underbelly of reality of mm-hmm. you know just being terrible to everybody, um, especially to the peasantry. Um, and so I kind of this this bugged me throughout the whole history. And perhaps I, if I'd read perhaps the four volume, uh, you know, twenty four hundred page masterpiece, uh, I might have a better answer. But <laughs> I kind of wondered why uh, there was so little movement in the French side. I mean, they here's the thing about the French side that we don't talk about very much in England because it's not really relevant for Shakespeare at least. Um, they were kind of undergoing their own civil war at this time. Oh, okay. uh, the the Burgundians who, you know, the Duke of Burgundy leads uh, and the Armagnacs uh, were two very huge uh, forces fighting against each other. And it's kind of like the English threat was and the all the pillaging and everything was just kind of like a side battle to oh. their to their larger uh, dynastic a feud between who should be the next Valois, which I think also That's came about hilarious. after. It's uh, kind of like the opposite of the Wars of the Roses being like a smaller battle in the larger Hundred Years' War. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. This was this was kind of the the side piece for them, and it really took until um, they lost uh, until Henry V came in and kicked everybody's butt and yeah. took over so much land of of France and. Uh, in, you know, eventually took over the crown that they kind of realized, oh, okay, this is a problem. Because Henry V had played the Burgundians against the Armagnacs to mm-hmm. get the, the Duke of Burgundy to help him uh, take over the throne. Yeah. So I wanted to wheel that back quickly to say that uh, it's, it's kind of interesting that uh, France didn't do more to prepare their own peasants to protect themselves right. in a sense. Um, you know, I was, I was kind of wondering, like, well, why didn't the French just learn how to... Uh, train their peasants in archery too or you know why did they not learn how to make longbows from italian trees or wherever they could have gotten the raw materials right and maybe they couldn't have and that was just where it ended Mm -hmm. um but it took a while for france to adapt and find something that would beat the english longbow which was eventually gunpowder um and the the big uh battle where um i think it was even might have actually been the battle uh where uh talbot from Henry yep. the Sixth, Part yep. One, uh, actually died was the first major use of uh, gunpowder weapons by France. Really, uh, it was actually the English storming a castle, and France had these <laughs> these terrible little uh, like pistols, I guess you would call them, but they're basically just a stick with a bullet inside and some gunpowder <laughs> shoved in there, and they just put a lit match onto a hole, exploded out, and you were just carrying this stick around with gunpowder and a bullet and a lit thing, just walking around. Like a Roman candle. Basically, but, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and But the, it was extremely effective yes, against the English uh, charging this this castle, and they just completely wiped out right. uh, the English. Um, and that was kind of the turning point. It was mm-hmm. this major technological mm-hmm. change that uh, Kind of like France the longbow was, did. Exactly. It came back around. Roman and, candle. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the French were also better with uh, uh, their cannons and so forth. So right. it was this it was this switch that came back around and eventually yeah. captured them. But it took 
you know, 70 years of getting their ass kicked yeah. basically for, uh, this for them to, to smarten up and say, hey, you know, maybe we should innovate a bit. Yeah. And, Instead of uh, doing the same thing and expecting different results. <laughs> but they did have Joan of Arc in the middle of all of this, too. They did have Joan we, of Arc. We haven't talked about Joan of Arc at all. Nope. Do you want to briefly touch on the historical Joan yeah, of Arc? I mean, did, did your book t- go into any uh, yeah, of it? Or? I mean, it was, it was very much, it was a little dismissive of her uh, contribution, yeah. except for, you know, she was a big morale raiser. Yeah. Um, but the, the historical record seemed to be that nobody really treated her all that well and nobody really believed that she was yeah. uh except for her but when she started you know inspiring troops to win a few battles mm-hmm. they uh they were all for it um and they kind of let her go and die really poorly yeah. um so she did she did have a, a large effect on improving the morale of the french once they'd kind of rallied around the dauphin who had um who should have been the rightful heir if yeah. henry v had not uh taken the crown from him right. or from his his father so yeah um yeah and that's that's eventually how uh they did win the war was right. through uh her contributions and then that uh Dauphin, i don't remember his name now i don't remember if yeah. he was crowned as charles something or I, th- I, I, don't I think he was eventually but it was a, a while later but yeah. but yeah like joan of arc I, and we touched on it a bit during um the henry the sixth part one but um she's this this mythical figure she really does stand and loom large in the french legend and she's very much poo-pooed in the english tradition yeah. so i mean growing up in english canada we didn't learn a lot about um joan of arc but my my colleagues who went through the francophone system here in alberta think joan of arc is just the, the bee's, bee's knees, knees. <laughs> and so it just goes to show how how these stories that are told um, are told very differently depending mm-hmm. on where you are. And I think that's why it's important for us to di- get into these histories a little bit because we're, we're getting an English propagandist view yeah. of the history of these English wars with France and so forth, so on and so forth. So um, to actually pick it apart and, you know, at some point it would be nice to, to kind of do a little bit more about these individual characters like Joan of Arc, mm-hmm. but I mean... As it is, it's. I think it's just important to recognize that there are two sides to this, and I and I learned some things already about like the French dynastic battles between, what you say, the Armagnacs and yeah. and the, the Burgundians. The Burgundians. Yeah. So, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of, a lot more similarities between the English and the French, um, which doesn't surprise me at all, considering the yeah. fact that the French and the English were so closely, very yeah. incestual <laughs> across very. the channel. There. Well, yeah, and that's the another thing we didn't touch on. But there was a lot of intermarrying between the two royal of families. Course. I mean, like at some point, I mean, Henry the Sixth, by some measures, was the rightful king of France, and it didn't matter because he lost the military battle, and that was the end well, of it. Well, and that and that's interesting too. That that um, it becomes less about who you are and who you're related to mm-hmm. and it's more about who, which army you're commanding yeah the realities on the, the battlefield exactly so kings that. and and again because of the wars of the roses we've talked about this a bit um kings were being decided on battlefields they mm-hmm. the, and and you have people like work the king maker who yeah. can make a king yeah. out of just a random nobleman yeah you know well well maybe not a random n- semi-random, nobleman, but, yeah, for sure. but i mean i think if you had him in your corner you'd be fairly Confidence. fairly confident yeah, that yeah. you would end up on the throne so um it it becomes less and less important who you are and what your lineage is yeah. um which is already yeah a huge step away from 
yeah. medieval period. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and just to, to touch on that, another kind of disintegration that that I kind of mentioned was, uh, and you actually, sorry, you'd actually mentioned it, Lindsay, but I mentioned it in our first overview period was that, right. uh, the kind of Renaissance era of England was when, uh, the wool trade really started yeah. going, but it was actually, you were right. When I was reading the book, they said, uh, wool was already England's number one export mm-hmm. and a huge driver of their economy was yeah. sending wool from there to, uh, the low countries. Yes. Um, so, I mean that, but that's kind of, uh, it had only gained strength gained strength Mm -hmm. uh through the uh early modern period Mm -hmm. um but it was again uh you know a free trade kind of economy did not exist prior to right um you know in the modern imagination the medieval economy is purely agrarian there's no trade there's no nothing like that um but it was already starting to take root and so that's kind of another way of um looking at this time period is kind of stretching the boundaries between those two uh time those two eras and uh, and saying that you know both of them kind of inter intersect and and, and then they lead into some interesting things in the later modern period with uh, early modern later i know that's not a real term <laughs> the early later the modern, modern, early modern later middle modern mm-hmm. um with like you know the dutch east india company and their trade mm-hmm. and and the things that happened later on in the 17th century um I think the seeds of that, at least insofar as England is concerned, are, are being laid in this period. Yeah. And then um, and then growing that merchant class is mm-hmm. what really triggers the, the start of the English Renaissance, which, again, happened quite a bit later than Renaissance on the continent, yeah. but um, happened nonetheless. So we're really in the middle of the Renaissance period when Shakespeare is writing these, but it's already well, well underway, almost over in, in the, yeah, rest the rest of, of Europe. Europe. Yeah, but, that's true. Um, yeah. Why then the world's mine oyster, which I with sword will open. So just to briefly kind of bring it back to Shakespeare quickly, how, do, how does how does this history kind of impact his plays? Um, I think we actually probably dealt with the play that deals with it the most, which is Henry VI, part one. Uh, other plays that we're coming up on to that it will deal with it, Henry the Fourth. Henry V. Henry V, obviously, will Richard II probably be the most. Eventually. Well, and that's the thing, because I wanted to talk about it because... Those other plays, despite being set in the middle of the Hundred Years' War, mm-hmm. don't have much to do with no. French politics right. at all. It is very much focused on the internal rivalries yeah. and so forth. Um, and I think that's interesting because the Hundred Years' War, again, it's it's kind of this, uh, this concept, um, but it falls apart because it was not a continuous war. No. Uh, Richard II did very little campaigning in, in France. Um, Henry IV did a fair bit more, but again, it was not... The focus of their reign. It was just, it was an economic tool almost for their country. And it's kind of represented as, as such in Shakespeare. Well, and I think also the the idea that, I mean, Henry VI part two was the first yeah, play that Shakespeare wrote in that that trilogy of Henry VI plays. Yeah. But these were early plays. Mm-hmm. And so he was a young playwright and... And a relatively inexperienced playwright, I would say, as we know from reading these early plays, they're not the most well-developed. No. So, yeah, fuck yeah. Let's put some battle scenes on stage, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. let's go whole hog into the battles of the the Hundred Years' War. Whereas later on, when, when you become a more um, sophisticated writer, you can have internal squabbles and you can have court intrigue be the mm. focus of your play and and have it carry as, as much, if not more weight yeah. than, than a battle scene that you can't even really accurately depict, yeah. as we know, because part one of the Henry VI trilogy is a, a 
abominable when it comes to <laughs> yeah, the battle the, scenes. The stage, yeah. um, so, so that could also be why we're seeing, you know, I'm sure that a, a more um, sophisticated playwright could have taken the story of Henry VI or any of the French noblemen fighting in that or yeah. Joan of Arc herself and and turned it into a Richard III court intrigue type yeah. play. Yeah. Um, with the right tools and the right language and the ability and skills as a writer, Shakespeare just didn't have that at the time. So maybe that's another reason why we see this focus on on wars and fighting and battles early on. Once we get and and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe once we get to those later, um, yeah, we'll, plays we'll in this, see more. I mean, I've I've read Richard the Second, and it's not focused on on France. Yeah, uh, yeah. We've read Henry the Fourth, Part One, mm-hmm. I believe, mm-hmm. uh, and it's also not focused. Although it, there is still war there, and it's, it's still there, but it's like the part. it's like the the tapestry behind yes, the scenes the it's like what's yes. happening in the background but yeah. there's all this other stuff that's happening in the foreground yeah. which is much more interesting yeah. so I, I i mean this is going to be an interesting one i i was not looking forward to the history plays i'm not going to lie to you um, i know <laughs> but but it's it's turning into something a little bit more interesting when you look at it and and in the broad context of shakespeare's work i think that it's going to bear some interesting fruit uh, and the other piece of fruit that we, I, sorry, I neglected to mention it when you were talking about nationalism. This is the birth of the English language in this time. Yeah, too. right. Uh, Chaucer was around during the reign of Edward III. Uh, he was probably a soldier who, he was actually captured in one of the battles. And, Chaucer uh, ransomed. Was. Yep. Wow. Um, so he, he firsthand saw part of this war, especially right. probably the early part. Um, and, you know, that was, and the, the, this breakdown into them versus us. Yeah helped form the language that Shakespeare eventually inherited. Right, 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 right. Um, even with its many French loan words and, you know, chevauchet itself obviously being a French word, uh, it, it helped to define what England became uh, by Shakespeare's time. That is so cool because language is one of those galvanizing features of anything. If you mm-hmm. speak the same language, I was talking about it with some coworkers the other day, that that's where you, when whenever you're in another country, you, you gravitate towards the areas, if you live in another country for a period of time, you gravitate to the areas where the expats are, right? Because mm-hmm. language centers you, it makes you, grounds you, it makes you feel home. Um, if you don't know how to communicate with somebody else, it's not. So, so to have the English language being born out of this, um, like the modern English language, right? Yeah. And and Chaucer was writing in the Middle, Middle English, English period, but but it comes into its into full flower in his during his time, mm-hmm. um, because of a war. If it's it's yeah. kind of, like I think that there there's awful things about war, and war is never something that you want to enter into. But um, it created something that was now you know English yeah. being this this language that. Yeah, a little anecdote from our Chaucer class. Uh, there was a competing poet uh, with Chaucer mm-hmm. in this time period, um, and he wrote his plays in or his poems, sorry, in three languages: in Latin, in French, and then in English, right. because he couldn't decide which language was going to come out on top. Right. So he basically wanted to last for posterity, so he wrote them in all in three languages. Chaucer just said English. Fuck yeah. it. I've fought those yeah. French bastards writing yeah. in this in yeah. that language anymore. And it had a, a huge impact. And and the nobles all flocked to it and they said, Yeah, this is this is how we're going to define who we are versus right. the French. We're not going to speak their language anymore. Although not that France is uh, was a homogeneous language group no. or anything at this well, and, point. Well, and English wasn't either, but yeah. but it starts to become that yes. in the, the time of Chaucer, and then with the Great Vowel Shift, you get more and more centralized. It yeah. becomes the 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 English that's spoken in London more than anything. Um, so that's already starting to happen, where you're you're kind of losing some of the the, the dialectical markers yeah. in words themselves that 
mark you off as being from the north or the south or whatever. Yeah. So by the by the time of Henry V, yeah. uh, he was probably actually speaking English in Agincourt, yeah. whereas Edward III was probably still speaking French right. to his troops and so right. forth. But Henry was uh, was an he was English, an English king. king. Yeah. Yes. So when we when we read the English uh, the English king proclaiming, you know, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, it's not out of the realm of possibility that he may have said something close. Yeah. Very cool. All I have is eat me out of house and home. So our uh, we still don't have a name for this. No, what we did. It? What was it the last episode? Marriage counseling? No, that no, was the first one. That was, that was terrible. One. Uh, this one's a fun one, though. Yeah. Lindsay, we've spent a month in each capital. England or France? Paris or London? Which one do you prefer? Go. Which city? Which city oh, Jesus. do you love more? Oh, my God. Say it right now for all of the world to hear. I, I have to say London. Okay. London is London is my city. London, I, I have fond, fond memories of taking my oyster card and getting lost on the tube and and coming up out of a train station and and finding myself in some neighborhood and and just being able to get lost we did that a little bit in paris i will admit a fair bit in but paris. but um but london is just london is it for me one thousand percent london and i just have to disagree so much paris yeah, i see i knew you were gonna say such that. a beautiful city i you don't even have to speak french to enjoy Paris. You can just walk through uh, the streets anytime, uh, winter, summer, fall. It's all beautiful. Mm -hmm. Uh, The art, the culture, everything there is incredible. And uh, it wins in my heart every time. Sorry, let's... Well, I guess we have to divorce now. Is that what the, does that what this mean? No, we'll just get two homes and then we can just take the, the <laughs> channel between back and forth when we want to visit yes. each other. Yeah. With what buttons or good looks? How are you going to pay we'll for do, this? We won't. We won't afford it, but we can do it for a couple months probably. Sure. Yeah. Let's try. That'll be fun. After the podcast is over. Yeah, then. sure. Okay. Have it be coward! And that's it uh, for this episode. Yeah, of thank Rich you, Pod. teacher, Mr. Hales. That was uh, an excellent You're lesson. You're welcome, pupil Lindsay Stamhuse. <laughs> uh, that was, I'm sorry, I was probably rambling on a little bit too much there, but uh, I'm glad you asked some very good questions. I asked pointed questions because yes. I knew where I wanted to lead the conversation. Because <laughs> as any helpful. good student, you want to get your teacher off track, right? That's right. So yeah. we, you you resisted me admirably. As much Maybe as I you could. should have my job. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, but thank you for joining us. Uh, next episode will be our continuation of uh, the history plays. Yes, Henry the Sixth, Part Two. Part Two. Part Two. Yeah, that should be fun. Part the Second. Part the Second. <laughs> You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at the Bixpod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash thebixpod, or by email at thebixpod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.